This is the Baymont Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, I'm with Josh Basset and Reed Dent to consider the role of priests in the tabernacle through their clothing. Yes, it's uh, it's going to be a little bit of a weird one, uh, probably in more ways than one. Um, this is also my first time doing a uh, proper episode with Reed, not uh, whatever nonsense we did last time we were on the same call. <laughs> nothing weird. There's Although, nothing weird about this. Nothing weird. A Genesis One connection there as well, since we titled it Tohu Vavohu. Oh, nice! It's very true, and we are, we are. Yes, we're going to start in uh, in Genesis One, and since Reed and I have a uh, a, a penchant for maybe <laughs> taking a long time with our episodes and drawing things out, let's just dive right into the text. <laughs> okay. So Brent, why don't you go ahead and start? Uh, uh, we're on day four. Yeah. Genesis one fourteen, And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. As we've been doing throughout this series, we're just going to start, you know, 10 steps back, just trying to pick out the most basic rudimentary elements of each day narratively, like what's being created how is God interacting with that creation? So what's the what's the first thing that jumps out at us? Uh, well, I, I mean, the day four is our is our center of the chiasm, the sacred times or seasons. Sure, yes, uh, that we talked about so much. Um, so that stands out, of course. And then mm-hmm. I think I think it always strikes me um, how it's this big deal. Like God made two great lights: a greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. <laughs> yes. And I, I mean, maybe that's, maybe that's just, uh, like, uh, like what Elle talked about in her series. Maybe it's just a form of presentism, um, because we know so much about the stars and we know how vast the universe is. And we've, you know, we've seen the images from the James Webb space telescope. <laughs> so like we have all this detail about it and it's like, I guess from their perspective, like the stars are just these little pinpricks of light like there's no there's no real thing there so maybe it's just that i mean that, that's, uh, but it just it strikes me how how little attention is given to the stars it's true and and that is that is in the text like if you if you read it you know you have you know god introduces the two luminaries the large one and it goes into detail like oh this one's for the day this one's for the night and then it just ends and the stars, like it's, it's two words in the Hebrew. It's yeah, it, it does seem very tacked on, but, uh, as we'll see, I think the stars end up becoming the most important part of this, at least for, um, what we're concerned about as, as human beings. Um, but just to, to not get too in the weeds, cause my goodness, could we get in the weeds here? Um, especially since we're at the center of all of creation right now. Um, let's just get very basic. What is God creating on this day? Uh, day and night, uh, get more literal sun and moon, sun and moon. And as Brent mentioned, stars lights. Now 
This should sound familiar to us. We've talked about light before back in which day? Well, I was I was actually it popped out uh, it popped out to me in a way that it really hasn't before that like, you know, one of the fa- most famous lines in the Bible, let there be light, mm-hmm. occurs again here in verse 14. Mm-hmm. Uh in the plural, let there be lights. Yes, absolutely. Um the in the in the Hebrew, it's a little bit more complicated than that because these are also like, it's not just lights plural. Whereas before it was lights singular. These are also um, uh, like a, a specifically light giving things, things that light up. Um, so it's a little bit more. Um, it's not quite as abstract as just this idea of light as a as a quality. Um, and what we should note here is that this is not only are we at the center of the chiasm, but um, for one of the other chiasms, we are at, uh, you know, on the, the, the first day on the flip side, the first three days we have God separating and we, you know, day one, we have light day two, we have water day three, we have dry land. And then we're going to see those same three, uh, uh, kind of, uh, zones of creation, those, those, uh, locales again, now, now that they've been separated and given structure. Now they're going to be filled. So we had light and darkness, and now we have these things that actually populate that rhythm that we talked about of light and darkness. And now it's not just light is day and darkness is night, but they're tied to these physical things, the sun, the moon, the stars. So this last chunk is going to be about filling that space that God has made. Um, so we're going to need to keep our eye on that because there's going to be a lot of you know, we talk about this every time, a lot of intertextual connections, even between different days. And, um, this will probably give us new things to think about as we think about day one and so on and so forth. Um, but it's important to realize the connections there because we, like we talked about last time, you know, day and night, they aren't like these, uh, supposed to be these, you know, towering, like, um, kind of monolithic symbols that we often make them in our, like, you know, in the stories that our culture tells of like light is good, dark is evil. Um, God made both of them and made them to be in a cycle with each other. And um, we see that kind of playing out here. Um, But what I think is really interesting is like, as we've gone through these days, we saw this most in the, the last uh, day of creation, day three, we are starting to get like more, um, more intricate creation. Like we had this extended thing, like explaining how plants and seeds and fruits work, like on a very rudimentary level. Um, and here also we have like a lot more specificity in what this creation is for. So like the first thing we see God doing it, God spends a lot of time talking about like the function and purpose of these lights. So real quick, let's go through, like, how does God describe these lights? Like, what is, what is their function? Uh, to govern. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's important because, you know, later when we get into, um, you know, man being given domain over creation, you know, skipping ahead, these are very different words. And notably, this is the word that is used when God is talking to Eve in Genesis three. So you got to keep that in mind uh, for future context. Mm. And uh, I think this is the first mention of that word. However, so yeah, they're supposed to govern over the day and the night. Um, what's the very first thing it mentions? Just right there in verse 14. Separating. Yep. They are now separating. Now we have like 
again, we, we kind of have this continuation, like we talked about last time, there was kind of this big step forward when now the earth is bringing forth uh, life kind of on its own, like the creation is now starting to be like brought into the process of creation, kind of in this uh, circular, you know, I don't know, fractal orb or whatever you want to look at it, like things are kind of turning back on themselves now and creation, like we see this partnership playing out even with inanimate um, aspects of the, of the created universe. Um, so yeah, we have uh, now the sun and moon kind of um, acting as, as uh, uh, participants in that cycle of separating day from night and marking one uh, apart from the other. And then what else are they used for separate day and night? It's the second one. It's still in verse 14. Yeah. Mar- marking, marking times. Yes. And seasons. Not just day and night, but yeah, speci- like, like what you said, Brent, um, we have festivals, um, holy times, sacred times, and also for days and for years. And, uh, this is really interesting. Um, but, uh, we're going to have to get into that a little bit later. What's the last thing God says that they'll do? Uh, give light to the earth. Is that give light to the earth, which kind of seems like, uh, you know, an obvious one, but it's interesting because, uh, spoiler alert, we're about to see a chiasm and God is going to repeat all this stuff. Um, so it must be pretty important. So we have separate day from night, um, be these markers, these signs for seasons, days, years, and then give light. And then what do we find uh, after it was so? In verse 16, God made the luminaries, like we said, the large one for the day, the smaller one for the night, and also the stars. And then in verse 17, we have the other half of the chiasm, where we see um, God set them, in verse 17, God set them in the firmament to give light to the earth. And then in verse 18, to have dominion uh, in day and night. And then finally to separate light from darkness in that same verse. So we kind of, as we're coming out, we have a recapitulation of those same things. In reverse, of course. In reverse. And we we also have some interesting things. Like the kind of the major difference is on the front end talking about the signs for the seasons, days, years. And on the other side, it just talks about the governance of day and night under the sun and moon. And that's, Mm. it's a little bit. It's a little bit different, um, but uh, overall, like when we think about when we think about that governance, that that control, that uh, uh, dominion, like what? Uh, how does that actually work? Like you're a human being, you're looking up at the sun and the moon and the way they go around and around. Like how does that actually? govern or bring order to creation i mean it just gives you a time frame of when to work and when not to work yes um yes because they're not dealing with any artificial lights so they're they're at the mercy of these lights we we have this uh this foray into into time like this is uh, a way of ordering time and it's it's different from just you know keep uh, keep the dry land and the water separate, or you have waters up there and waters down there. Like this is, this is time playing out, which of course is going to culminate at the very end where, you know, we get to Shabbat. Won't go into that right now. I've got to save that for later, but <laughs> we are the, these, um, like the way that they guide us, um, 
as signs or govern over us is, is as we walk through time between these modes of light and darkness. Um, so to go back to the role that these play and, um, and those, those stars that, you know, they're kind of the ones that get dropped out of the mix. I mean, it's the sun and the moon that get mentioned in the, in the last half of the chiasm. But, um, like when we think about the stars and like their use, like they're, they're the ones that actually, you know, signal different seasons and, uh, things of that nature. Like, yeah, you know, light and dark on the daily sense, uh, you know, we see that with the sun, we see that the, the months being kept by the moon, but the stars kind of keep time on a much larger scale. And, um, and if we're going to think about like the role of stars, like what, what do, what do stars do? They are entertainment. <laughs> they're the only thing to do at night. <laughs> yeah. They're the only game in town. Well, the thing is, is that, um, what's, uh, whose job is it to be in charge of the night again? The moon, the moon. And, and part of that job is what it's, um, separating day from night and, uh, you know, that I can see how that works. You can look out at night and be like, oh, it's dark. Okay. Um, it's supposed to uh, uh, serve as a sign, which, yep, check. You can look out and see if you see the moon. If you see it's dark, you know, it's nighttime. It's time to sleep. But what about giving light to the earth? Is the moon always very good at that? <laughs> Not always. Occasionally it's, occasionally, it's very good at it. Occasionally, it's very good at it. And then at other times... <laughs> It just, it just doesn't show up. Right. <laughs> it's completely gone. But what is still there? Stars. Exactly. And to go back to the themes we talked about in day one of God acknowledging that when we start our, our journey, we, we begin in darkness. We begin not knowing how to um, understand the world around us. Um, that, that idea of relational truth and like not actually knowing where we stand in the world. That's what darkness is. That's why darkness freaks us out so much. And, uh, the promise that, you know, of God saying, I'm going to bring light. And not only that, my personality, the, when I express myself, that's light darkness. Yeah. I, I created it. I put you here in this dark world and you're gonna have to deal with that. But my, like who I am is a bringer of light. And now we see that, that even, even, you know, in the, the night sky, when it is dark, there's still light. Well, and I, I think and those it's, lights. Oh. oh no, please, please. Well, I was just going to say, I think it's interesting that another thing that the stars do it, like I, you think about how, you know, sailors sail at night exactly. is by the positions of the stars. And so the stars also orient us in the dark, like at, at, during the daytime mm -hmm. you get oriented by where is the sun in the sky and now I know which direction I'm facing, but in the dark at night, when there is no sun, uh, visible, if you know how mm -hmm. to read, it's like a map and you can figure out which way you're going based on Absolutely. the position of the stars. Yeah. Are the stars actually expected to give, uh, an amount of light that you can actually do anything with though? Or is it, or is it really more just about orientation? Like even if you can't see anything, you know where you are because you can see the stars. I think there's a little bit of both. Like, yeah, usually stars don't give you enough light to see. Although, you know, 
I also don't know uh, how much light they, you would get at night, you know, if you're a nomad in the middle of the desert. Maybe the stars do a lot more for you then. I can't speak to that personally. However, um, exact, like, Reed, you're exactly on the right point. Like, they're, like, the stars, in fact, it's because the stars are so numerous and so spread apart that diffusion is what makes them useful as a map is that the like you can you can look at it and recognize where the the the, the certain stars are and actually know like where you are where you're going even in the darkness um and not only that like and i think this is really important like when we talk about darkness as a um something that we have to live through times where we don't know where we're going um there's a lot of times where we don't really know where we're going but also i think more importantly and, and something that's even more difficult to articulate and sometimes figure out is we also don't often know what time we're in because if if you're out there like sometimes you just need a reminder that you're in darkness like there's a different way of living when you're in a time of darkness, like you, you need, you're going to need more rest. You're going to need more support. You're going to need to be more careful and, um, be more, more kind to yourself. You know, there, there's all sorts of, uh, important things that are taught when we pay attention to how we're moving through time. And, you know, like when the sun's out, you kind of don't have to worry about that. You just, you know, you can tool around and do whatever you need to do. And you just wait until it's less light and, and that's a pretty easy thing to work off of. But when you're in darkness, it's a lot more complicated. Maybe the moon's there. Maybe it isn't. Maybe you have enough light to see. Maybe you don't. But the star's constancy is is there permanently. And that gives light in the sense of like being able to understand where you are and what time it is, even if it doesn't give you the light to do the thing you might want to do. Mm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So we, again, it kind of have the same themes of God like acknowledging how how difficult it is to to exist in the world as little squishy finite guys um and has set these lights in place for for our benefit and for the benefit of all creation um to to guide us through time and what's interesting to me is that when um uh, the center of the chiasm is God creating. And it's when it says that he sets the word for set, there is the word for give. Um, and I don't know, you know, I'm not, I'm not L. So I don't know exactly like if this is supposed to have like the, the sense of a, of a gift. Uh, but it is, it is something that, um, God is, is providing to us, uh, to help us, navigate our way through through times it's one thing to be able to see where you are but to know what season you're in we're gonna maybe think in like ecclesiastes terms it's just as important to know what moment we're in than uh, as it is to know um, where we are so you talked about um, and i think we're familiar with this as far as genesis one where there's separation in the first three days and then filling in the next three days but if you had asked me like just looking at the Mishkan as we've seen it so far, I would have thought, oh, the Mishkan is already full of stuff. Like the, <laughs> the Ark is full of stuff. The Holy of Holies has all these elements um, filling it. Like there's altars, there's 
there's just all this stuff. It seems like it's already filled. So yeah, apparently that's not what it's actually filled with. That is, mm. that is somehow part of the separation. And so we're going to see what, what it means to fill the tabernacle. There's a wonderful little insight there, Brent Billings. And yes, it perfectly sets up what we're going to be talking about today in uh, Exodus. And we're going to go through this one a little uh, more piecemeal than we normally do. Um, and most of what we're going to be reading is in Exodus 28, but because, you know, I don't know, I, I feel like the, um, chapter deciders, whoever they are or were, um, made a oopsie here. And so we're actually going to be reading the tail end of Exodus 27 and then the rest of 28, although not in its entirety, we're going to skip around. So don't nobody fret. Um, <laughs> so with that, uh, Brent, will you go ahead and Give it to us. Exodus 27, right at the end. Uh, Command the Israelites to bring you clear oil of pressed olives for the light, so that the lamps may be kept burning in the tent of meeting outside the curtain that shields the Ark of the Covenant Law. Aaron and his sons are to keep the lamps burning before the Lord from evening till morning. Mm -hmm. This is to be a lasting ordinance among the Israelites for the generations to come. Yes, and let's pause there real quick. First of all, I mean... If we, if, if you're still at this point wondering if these two passages of scripture are supposed to be tied together, why, why are we talking about oil here of all places? We already talked about the lamps three chapters ago. This, this is, this is intentional. We're back to talking about light in the creation story. And lo and behold, we're talking about oil and light here in the creation of the Mishkan. And we also have a nifty little introduction, um, so we we first have a, a reminder of the the people like this is a request for the people to bring something which if we'll remember is also how uh, this whole process began with a list of things for the people to bring and here we have a reiteration again like we're we started a, another turn of the cycle of uh, those images light water land we're back to light in the creation story and now we're back to the beginning part so it's talking about the people bringing the the oil the substance that the priest will use to create light and uh and this is also brilliant because it's setting us up to talk about the priests and um what i want to note here is a couple things first of all that um the participation of the people is the first the first aspect of this which is again like Literarily, I hope everyone can appreciate the brilliance of this. What were we talking about last week? Community. Now here we have community being the point at which the actual stuff that light is made out of gets into the hands of the priests who are going to be the ones tending to the light. And moreover, um, they talk about the lighting the lamp continually, tamid. And I mean, think about the conversation we were just having about the stars and the importance of this uh, illumination of giving light um, and talking about the priest's role as having this light be available continuously and the linking between saying like they, they don't have that light. We can't have these, these lights unless we have the community that we've talked about in the previous episodes. Like, again, this is one coherent process, one coherent, uh, entire creation. And it, it, these are all interrelated and, um, 
each piece relies upon all the other pieces. They're not, they're not, you're not able to separate them all out. I'm just curious if there's anything to make of that. It is clear. I don't know what you guys have said before in the, in the previous episodes yet, but uh, if there's anything to make of that, it is clear oil from olives. Yeah. I mean, there's honestly, there's probably something there to be perfectly frank. I don't, I don't know. There, there's not a ton. I mean, the, Oh, actually, it's staring me right in the face. Yeah, because Genesis 3 was all about plants growing up out of the earth. Okay. Right? And yeah. so what are the people bringing? They're bringing the fruit of the earth, the fruit of that solid community, and that fruit is literally now becoming light. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's <laughs> that's great, Reed. I'm, I'm glad, glad I can you help you that. stumble onto that because, I mean, I'm just asking because I don't know, but I'm, yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's perfect. Yeah, I don't know about the clear part. I mean, I think there's... Um, there's some lessons we could uh, take from that if we wanted to drill down and think about like the community's part of this process. Like what is the community's job? Well, yeah. I mean, I wonder if, if there's some uh, olive oil as opposed to what other kind of oil, some other kind of oil, if there's something that's like labor intensive about the process, uh, because it mentions like Mm. beaten olives, uh, you know, so they're extracting the oil. It's probably expensive too, uh, I would guess, like olive oil. Um, it's since it's clear, is that like finer? Be, uh, I don't know. I mean, these are, yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely, it's definitely a quality marker. Um, and that, that's def, I mean, and that's something that runs through the whole Mishcon. You know, they're very uh, specific about what kinds of materials to use, but, and I, I can't imagine it's, too labor intensive in terms of like, I mean, I'm sure it's, it is literally labor intensive, but right. it's like olive oil is used in a lot of places. So I imagine it's, it's like not, um, because the, the, the substance itself is pretty common. You bring the best olive oil to mm-hmm. the, uh, this, you know, communal center, which I think is kind of to go back to the point I was making, like kind of talks about how the community has to show up in the tabernacle for it to work the way it's intended. Mm-hmm. Like if you're, if you are part of the community, like you have to bring the light like that, that isn't just the job of the the priest or, you know, your spiritual leader, like you, you are part of that, even if you're like, feel way on the periphery, like the, the, Mm -hmm. the quality of your presence when you show up, like, is it, is it clear? Are you really there? Have you, have you kind of pushed out all the other stuff? Um, and if so, then like, that's going to make the, the community as a whole flourish and be more full of light. Mm -hmm. Um, and again, we're already talking about like how to fill that how to fill this communal space that's been created. Um, so without further ado, Brent, will you get us into the chapter proper and just get us kicked off here? What are we talking about? Have Aaron, your brother brought to you from among the Israelites, along with his sons, Nadav and Avihu, Eliezer and Ithamar, so they may serve me as priests. Make sacred garments for your brother, Aaron, to give him dignity and honor. Tell all the skilled workers to whom I have given wisdom in such matters that they are to make garments for Aaron for his consecration, so he may serve me as priest. These are the garments they are to make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a woven tunic, 
a turban, and a sash. They are to make these sacred garments for your brother Aaron and his sons, so they may serve me as priests. Have them use gold and blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and fine linen. So we're kicking off these priests who we've just heard mentioned kind of for the first time with the oil bit. And uh, kind of oddly, the focus is on clothes, which might puzzle uh, a lot of you out there. Like, why is this? Why is this the first thing that we're talking about? Um, you know, we we not that they don't necessarily know what a priest is, but like, what is this priest like? As as a Westerner, I think like, okay, what is this priest actually going to be doing? Like, okay, we're talking about what they're wearing. Um, and, and there's just such an emphasis placed on the clothes. Like, it's not just that they come first, like it's repeated that these garments, they're, they're for Aaron's glory and splendor, or as you, uh, you said, like dignity and honor. Um, they're, they're to make Aaron look cool. Right. But they also have a sanctifying effect and they're necessary for them to be able to serve as priests before God. Like, there's so much importance being put on these clothes, which, you know, in our culture, we kind of think of as um, a little bit more like empty of, of that kind of significance. Um, so yeah. What's, what's such a big deal about these, uh, about these clothes? Like, why is it the clothes that make it possible for them to be a, a priest, a Kohen? Well, and I'm thinking in what way are these, pieces of clothes giving off light That's a great <laughs> because question. it doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like they would be. Um, but I, I mean, I guess the gold would be kind of reflective and mm -hmm, yeah. I mean, yeah. And you have gold woven into woven into the clothing and all over it. And we'll also see there's like precious stones and stuff. Um, and actually light will, will come up in uh, an interesting instance, but um what is the one thing that is similar between light and clothing? I I mean, I guess they're, they're both markers. Sure. Mm -hmm. Like you wear particular kinds of clothes for particular occasions. Mm -hmm. And even more to the point, like it's, it's something visual. It's something you see, right? Mm, sure. So maybe there's something going on here visually that people are supposed to key in on. Um, Maybe there is something being communicated by the clothes. We, you know, we talked about the, um, the stars and the lights. Like it's not just that they're, you can see them, but they also communicate information to you. They help you navigate, whether that's navigate space or navigate time through the seasons and knowing, knowing how much longer the summer is going to last. Cause you know, you know, when this, uh, astrological or uh, astronomical sign is over, you know, this part of the sky, like it's, uh, it's helping you navigate, which as we've talked about before, like that, that is, that is part of the priest's role. So there's, there's some similarities there, but yeah, giving light through clothes. You got any thoughts on this read? I, what was going through my head is, uh, there's a, there's a Psalm that talks about God being clothed with light. And so when you were talking about, you know, priestly garments and mm. clothing as a, a kind of wrapping or something, um, I don't know that there's much to make of that here, but that was, yeah, just those, those words were sparking that association in my mind that it is something that like, uh, 
But it's interesting because light doesn't really, light itself is not visible, so to speak. It is what makes other things visible. And so maybe that's a distinction in the way that we were just talking about it from clothing. Like you don't, you know what I mean? Like I'm not Mm -hmm. seeing light. I am seeing by the light, like the light shows me other things. And to kind of piggyback on that kind of nuanced distinction, we should remember too, like what was created in this day wasn't light right. as like that, that quality that we see by, but sources of light. So maybe the, the better way to think about this question as we move through these garments is like, not whether they do communicate light, but like, how do, are they, how are they a source of light? And, and if we kind of maybe take light away from, you know, the literal sphere, um, mm-hmm. how, how are they communicating? Um, you know, we talked about light as the thing that God the only thing in creation that comes purely out of God's expression, like he says it and it exists and there's nothing in between. It's the first thing God speaks. Like light is tied to God's presence and God's like personhood. Um, so how are they communicating God and God's presence and God's nature and being and however else we want to frame that? How is that found? here. And is there is there something because we also mentioned the idea of being oriented by mm, the lights. Exactly. And so is there something orienting for the people about the the garments of the priests? Absolutely. That's perfect. I love that. So uh rattled off a bunch of different uh types of clothing. And so we're gonna go through them kind of one by one. Um, some of them are a little longer than others and we'll kind of jump around through it, but, uh, hold, hold on one, one more thing to throw in. Oh yeah. Uh, so the word for glory, the NET footnote pointed out that it is used previously for the glory of the Lord, which is true. Mm-hmm. Um, shows up in Exodus 16 a couple of times and then Exodus 24 a couple of times. Yes. Um, the word is both for the cloud. Yeah. Both for the cloud and for the fire. Uh, but the first mention is actually in Genesis 31. Um, referring to um, Laban's sons talking about Jacob, saying Jacob has taken everything our father owned and has gained all this wealth mm. from what belonged to our father, which is a really weird, weird first mention. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know necessarily what to think about that, but I just wanted to throw that out because um, what, a, what a weird, I, I think the glory of the Lord concept um, makes a ton of sense in this context. Yeah, but looking at the first mention, it's like, is there like what is what is there about that story <laughs> that that we might be able to uh, learn something for what we're looking at in the Mishkan? I don't know. Well, so the the just on a linguistic level, the word kavod means to be heavy. Um, ironically, yeah. it's also the the word for the liver uh, because it's the the heaviest organ. Now, what do you know about that, Josh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's a word. It's also used throughout to describe like the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. One of the words for that is kavod. So that's, um, it, it's a, it is an interesting word. Although not, not in this form, apparently. Well, either way, I'm not letting you drag me down a Jacob rabbit hole. Cause Jacob, <laughs> Jacob is low key, probably my favorite. And I could talk about him for the rest of the episode if we get into that. So. <laughs> All right, all right, all right. So we're talking to, about to the ephod, then. <laughs> yeah, to the ephod. What what is an ephod? Let's find out. Well, having read this previously <laughs> in my life, I'm going to say, uh, don't necessarily expect to understand what it is after reading it. But I will. I will read this passage. 
Make the ephod of gold and of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and of finely twisted linen, the work of skilled hands. It is to have two shoulder pieces attached to two of its corners so it can be fastened. Its skillfully woven waistband is to be like it, of one piece with the ephod, and made with gold and with blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and with finely twisted linen. Take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel in the order of their birth, six names on one stone and the remaining six on the other. Engrave the names of the sons of Israel on the two stones the way a gem cutter engraves a seal. Then mount the stones in gold filigree settings and fasten them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel. Aaron is to bear the names on his shoulders as a memorial before the Lord. Make gold filigree settings and two braided chains of pure gold like a rope and attach the chains to the settings. Okay. So, yeah, not very helpful, at least to uh, our modern ears, to wrap our head around what's what's happening here. Um, And it does seem like there's a lot of detail, but it's like maybe there's too much detail and I don't, and it's just like, we don't, we don't make things like this. Sure. So yeah, exactly. Like if, if, I don't know, I'm I'm sure the way we describe pants, you know, like we talk about like two measurements, you know, and, and sure, you know, like length and, you know, the waist and whatever. And if you don't know what pants are, then that's going to be probably pretty confusing to only get two (laughs) measurements. And, you know, you don't know what the pockets are or anything like that. Um, so yeah, this is, this is something that is definitely context bound. Um, the way I've heard rabbis describe it is it's, it's kind of like a, um, like imagine an apron kind of just, just like a apron from the waist down, put it on backwards. So it's like tied at the front and then it has two straps from that waistband going up your back and over your shoulders. And that's where like on your shoulders, that's where those two stones are. And then there's this little bit at the end that's going to attach to the breastplate, which is what we'll be talking about next. So the breastplate like kind of hangs on that, um, from your shoulders over your chest. Well, I think we are going to make a presentation, um, with some pictures of some of these elements and those pictures may or may not include Marty, Yes. As a model, <laughs> we, we may have to get permission and, or find the right image, but <laughs> he might, he might make his way into this episode after all. Yes. Now, however confusing it is. And honestly, the description I gave, I'm pretty sure is not uh, the same as Marty's costume and who knows if it's accurate. It's really not the point here. There's, there's a couple details though, that I think in light of what we were talking about earlier of like what does this clothing communicate? I think we have some stuff that should be popping out to us. Any, any guesses? I mean, I'm looking at this word memorial as a Mm -hmm. memorial Mm -hmm. and as a, as a remembrance or a memorial. And it, if I'm thinking back through the discussion about the, the lights, the luminaries being markers for these seasons and times, uh, and it reminds me of, well, I don't know if there, it reminds me of the purpose of the festivals, even like to, to mm. mark, you know, this, this kind of sacred time, uh, to, to be a remembrance yeah. of these various things. And so these stones as a remembrance feel 
it's like uh, portable, wearable festival type stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Like a, a, a reminder. Um, and yeah, like the, the same way that the festivals, you know, through the year walk you through, you know, a lot of the big moments of your story. Yeah, this this also calls back. Yeah, orientation in time, the way that the the way that the we were talking about the the stars and the lights from the creation account. And not only that, like if, if we just think about it in terms of like the kind of immediate meaning, we have we have two stones and they have the names of all the tribes, mm-hmm. two on one stone or uh, six on one stone, six on the other. And then where where are they on Aaron's body? The sh- the shoulder. Yeah, the shoulders. Like he's he's care. It literally says he'll carry their names before mm-hmm. the Lord. Mm-hmm. And it, it's interesting because it it says memorial twice. Um, uh, the first uh, point it says that they will be uh, stones of memorial for the children of Israel, um, and. The, the phrase there of four, it's it's literally in front of or, or to the the children of Israel. So like is that could be read, and I think it's probably meant to be read like it's for their for their benefit, like it's supposed to be reminding you of the people. Um and not only that, it then uh reiterates that he's carrying their names before the Lord on his shoulders as a memorial. Like mm-hmm. what the thing that's being emphasized here is that the priest is like carrying the entire community. He is a representative of the whole community and he needs to to carry that weight appropriately. That is like the the first thing. So is it is it I am I reading it? correctly and hearing that it it's going both ways like uh the memorial is in verse 12 there for the sons of israel and then at the end of verse 12 it is a memorial before the lord and so is it like the priest is standing there and the remembrance like the you know that symbol it it's for the sake of both parties for the sake of the sons of israel and for the sake and for the lord does that question make sense yeah, I, I I think I may have misspoke a little bit before. Yeah, the the first part it just says they're a remembrance for the children of Israel, but that word for for I mean Hebrew's tricky. It, it could it it could mean that in the sense of it's like it's for their benefit. Okay, um, you could read it as that it's a reminder for them, but uh, uh, either way, like the the main emphasis here is definitely on the priest um, and that they are. Like, like the fact that it, it doubly emphasizes that they're on the priest's shoulders and um, like th- the way I read it is it's kind of the first part is like you have to always be remembering that you are carrying the people. And then it reemphasizes it saying like when you are in front of the Lord, you are not just you. You carry an entire people on your shoulders, and you need to remember that. Yeah, that makes sense. That 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 makes sense. So it's uh, when it, memorial for the sons of Israel is like this is a representation of them. It's a memorial of them. Uh, yes. Before the yeah okay that makes sense. And in the first time it just says it's a remembrance of the people. The second time it emphasizes it says specifically he will carry or bear their names mm-hmm. shemotam their names like. They they are um, they are supposed to be like represented. Their names are there. Mm. Um, it's not just like this disembodied sense of responsibility. It is a real group of real people, and you're carrying all those names. 
Mm-hmm. And I think what's uh, like really important here, and I, I'm probably going to reiterate this a couple times, is that when we start thinking about this and how we apply it, there's some of this that we just all of us in the spirit of being a nation of priests, we can all do this and engage in this. However, there's a big asterisk and, you know, red flashing lights that there is also a part of this that is specifically aimed at spiritual leadership. And that creates some, so, so a lot of what I'm going to be taking this, um, episode toward is trying to talk about how we embody this as, you know, everyday priests, not necessarily, um, in the same manner that I would teach us, like if I was talking to a group of spiritual leaders and like, there are additional, like literal responsibilities that come with that. And I think that's important to recognize before we start picking this apart. Cause I'm my, my primary, uh, the group I have in mind is those of us that are trying to represent God to the world and be, um, um, these, uh, uh, you know, the, the nation of priests, the people that are doing that work of reconciliation, navigation, um, bringing light like that is, that is a priestly role. And, uh, the degree to which this applied to us is gonna, you know, we have to keep in mind that there's that whole spiritual leadership, messy conversation to that, that overlaps here. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think we can see that a little bit here. Um, but even though like probably most of us listening to this are not in positions of a, like, you know, broad spiritual leadership or the degree to which we are pretty minor, um, we don't necessarily have a whole community on our shoulders, but I think nevertheless, it's, it's a really good idea to, when we're before God, especially as, you know, for those of us and the audience who are Westerners, particularly if you're. American to see your time with God, like not just being about you and God or your immediate problems, but like you as just the tip of an iceberg of, you know, all the humanity everywhere. Um, like you can, you, you are a part of that. Um, we, we bear, uh, a long lineage of tradition and people that we're interconnected with. And, um, Anywho, so this is this is not a uh, something that we necessarily have to take as like a burden of responsibility, but can definitely be a way of deepening how we see ourselves uh, in relation to the world and the people around us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, any other thoughts on the the shoulder stones? I don't think so. It's it's actually not true. I still have lots of questions, but I think we just need to move on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm actually already looking ahead at all the many stones coming up. So <laughs> yes. shall we continue? Mm-hmm. Fashion a breast piece for making decisions, the work of skilled hands. Make it like the ephod of gold and of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and of finely twisted linen. It is to be square, a span long and a span wide and folded double. Then mount four rows of precious stones on it. The first row shall be carnelian, chrysolite, and beryl. The second row shall be turquoise, lapis lazuli, and emerald. The third row shall be jacinth, agate, and amethyst. The fourth row shall be topaz, onyx, and jasper. Mount them in gold filigree settings. There are to be twelve stones, one for each of the names of the sons of Israel, each engraved like a seal with the name of one of the twelve tribes. 
And then jumping down to verse 29. Whenever Aaron enters the holy place, he will bear the names of the sons of Israel over his heart on the breastpiece of decision as a continuing memorial before the Lord. Also put the Urim and the Thummim in the breastpiece so they may be over Aaron's heart whenever he enters the presence of the Lord. Thus Aaron will always bear the names of making decisions for the Israelites over his heart before the Lord. I just want to say you did a really good job pronouncing all of those uh, names, Brent. That's uh, There's a lot of tricky ones in there. You did a good job. Okay. Okay. Yes. Well, thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So we have a little bit of a, uh, a kind of, uh, I mean, you can see the parallels between this and the, the piece we just read. Once again, we have precious stones. We have the 12 names being carved into them and the importance of Aaron carrying them, but with a whole lot of distinctions and differences. And let's go through some of those. What are some of the differences you noticed? Each stone gets just one name on it. There are 12 instead mm-hmm. of six divided into, or 12 divided into two, there's 12 divided into 12. Yes, absolutely. What else is, is different about the stones? Uh, I mean, I'm just imagining uh, the coloration. Like there's a lot of color in these stones and, mm-hmm. and onyx. Yeah. Onyx is just black. Yeah, exactly. They're all, they're all different stones. Whereas before they were on the same, mm-hmm. the same type of stone. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? There's another big one that they repeated a couple times. There's the engraving thing, which is one of the things that I was thinking about pointing out, uh, the first time around, mm-hmm. like, first of all, it seems like there's a whole lot of extra detail about this. It's like, Take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Mm-hmm. Okay. That seems like all the all the more information I need to know to do what I need to do there. Yeah. But then it goes on. In the order of their birth, it's like, okay, well, don't they always do stuff in the order of birth already? But okay, fine. Six names on one stone and the remaining six on the other. It's like, okay, well, I, I mean, sure. Like, I guess maybe somebody... <laughs> Maybe somebody didn't think about it and they started writing and they got eight names and then like, oh, only four. Like, it just seems like all this extra deal, but whatever. But then it says, engrave the names of the sons of Israel on the two stones, the way a gem cutter engraves a seal. Yeah. But the, and then it repeats that. Mm-hmm. Um, each engraved like a seal with the name of one of the 12 tribes. So what what is it about a seal that is different? from a normal gem engraving? That's a great question. And honestly, I I have had this thought before and have kind of um, bandied around a couple different explanations. Like, I think the most simple one is maybe it's like, you know, when you think of carving something into a stone, you think of carving into it. Maybe this is meant to indicate that it's supposed to be like embossed, like they're carving around so the names stick out rather than sticking in. If that makes sense. Okay. Could be that. It could also be maybe a reference to the function of a seal. Like maybe the stones are meant to communicate that like, you know, like a seal is um, kind of like a signature is now it's used to authenticate that something came from you. Like maybe it's meant to underline the priest as representative is like a genuine um, representative of the people like how he represents them the people are like giving their consent like yeah what you how you represent us like we're giving you the right to represent us like we're giving you our seal um but yeah there's honestly i i uh (laughs) we've we've had to cut so much from this there there's a lot of digging left to do and i'm sure if you hop on safari and look at some midrash there's probably a lot of really interesting stuff on that but yeah that's a great 
detail to pick out Brent. One other thing about the gems uh, from the NET footnotes, there's um, Yu Kasudo in some big volume on Exodus points out that uh, they're the same stones mentioned in Exodus 28, referring to the garden, mm. um, which is obviously after the fact here. Um, but it's just interesting that uh, that the writer connects these stones to the garden. Yeah. Wait, sorry. You said it was the, the stones referred to in the... Yeah, I mean, it, it does have the, the... The stones that are translated as onyx are are mentioned yes but in ezekiel 28 the oh, whole ezekiel. list <laughs> i thought you said exodus 28 and i was like yeah, yeah that's yeah. the chapter we're in print okay yeah. <laughs> all right confusion no, no, no. averted this, this guy writing a volume on exodus i see points out that the gems here are brought up again in ezekiel 28 yes and connected to the garden yes absolutely absolutely um and uh, on that note, like, yeah, the, the connection being made to the garden and, uh, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, obviously, yeah, the, the time is flipped, but there, there might be a, an interesting connection there. Yeah. The, definitely the, um, the shokham, uh, translate as onyx. Well, one thing is we don't know what all these specifically are, but we do, we can see they all have, all the stones have proper names and they're all different. So this is, this is definitely like, Whereas the first set of stones were, were emphasizing the weight of the people as like an entire community. This is definitely emphasizing them as individuals. And I wonder too, if this kind of answers some of your questions, Brent, where it's like the, the point that the text seems to be coming back to is that like your names are being carried in front of God's presence, um, into God's presence like that, the, there's so much care that every name is there and what order it goes in. Like it, it feels like it might be, um, going into such detail to, uh, to honor the people and to, to let them know, like they're, they're not being forgotten, like not even a little bit, like we're not going to mix up you and your brother. Like every single one of you is, remembered is in their right place. Like we're going to do this right and make sure that, uh, that you are fully represented. But in the second chunk here with the breastplate, um, like not only are they on individual stones, but like, uh, let's, let's talk again about placement. It mentions this several times of where are these stones placed over his heart, over his heart. And it mentions that a couple times. Um, and, uh, what's also interesting here is, you know, it, it, it called this the, the breastplate of, a uh, what was yours? Uh, deci- making decisions. Is that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that, that's not a bad one, but the, the literal word here is mishpat, which we might remember as being one of the words for justice and specifically of making justice decisions that are like, uh, that require a lot of discernment, making sure everyone is, is taken care of properly. Um, and so with this, um, this idea of, of not just making decisions, but even making difficult decisions and, and weighing the needs of everyone individually, it, it asks that his heart, which we have to remember in, um, in the Hebrew Bible is not just, you know, how we imagine it today as being like feelings oriented. The heart is kind of just the, the, the 
seat of your internal stuff, you know, like your thoughts and your feelings and your hopes and dreams and ideas, your will, your intention, all that stuff is referred to as your heart. So they're kind of asking here, like, you know, Aaron, when you like, you can't just feel the weight of the people on your shoulders when you are in here. And when you're making decisions that are going to affect everyone from that weight, you aren't just making the best decision for the whole people. Those are individual tribes and they have individual needs. They look as different and diverse as the, the colors on your chest. And it needs to be in your heart, in your consciousness, both in how you feel and in how you think and reason, you have to be taking all these different people into consideration. We're not just doing some utilitarian, what's best for everyone is best, even if it, you know, screws over a couple of the smaller tribes that don't matter. You know, who, who cares what happens to Naftali? You know, we, we kept Judah happy. So this was the right decision. Like, no, everyone has a place. Everyone on that is, is being considered. Their names are all individually on his heart. And another thing that's interesting, you, uh, you read that there is something strange that into the breastplate. So it described it as kind of this, um, piece of cloth. There's all the jewels on one side and it's folded in half. And that kind of now it has kind of a little envelope thing. Uh, and that's attached to the, um, the, the two shoulder, uh, plates of the, of the ephod, um, and something is put inside of that little pouch and it's called the Urim and the Tumim, uh, which is not usually translated. It's kind of assumed that it's some sort of specific thing, but it literally means the lights and the completion or perfection. Um, so once again, we have lights showing up, um, and there's a lot of weird, um, midrash about this we we see it come up in um like in in some of the davidic stories where it's used like for divination and stuff like that it's used to communicate with god um but without getting too much into that like we we should note here that yeah like we once again have this idea of of light being combined with decision making and and understanding like like, again, like the, the difficulties of leading a group of people, not always being about like, okay, where do we go and what do we do? Cause it's like, you know, okay, they have a pretty good idea of that. They're going to the promised land. Um, they know where it is. They know how to get there. There's a much bigger and like more complicated question when we get into those questions of time, like, when do we go? How fast do we go? Um, and even the more particulars of like, oh, do we take the slow path? Do we take the the quick path, even though it's a little bit more shady? Like, what? How do we um, how do we navigate this in all the in all the nuances that make community difficult to lead? You know, we talked last time about how community is fruitful, but actually, like being in community and figuring out how to navigate that in a in a direction that that's going to take some light and um and that's a big part of what we're talking about here this guy umberto moshe david casuto oh yeah 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 uh, big old big old commentary on the book of exodus from 1967 apparently hmm. maybe i should just link it in case anyone's interested in 
picking up a $40, 500-page <laughs> tome of commentary. But apparently it goes into quite a bit of detail about what the possibilities of these two pieces could be. One other thing I want to mention here is that in this um, second article of clothing with stones and remembrances on it is that um, one word is added here that'll... Um, if you remember, we talked about it earlier with the light. It's the word tamid, constantly, always. The the breastplate is supposed to uh, be before Adonai, constantly, before God, constantly. Which, again, if we're talking about like what this communicates, like God knows they're an entire people, but it's when their names are all separated and given unique individual character. God says, I want to always have that right in front of me. I always see you in your own context. Like I always remember you in that way, not just as a big blob of humanity, like you in your context, I know who you are. Yeah. I don't know what to make of it, but I just think it's really interesting that the, the communal representation on the onyx is on the shoulders being born there. Like you talked about, like a weight, you know, when you carry something there, you're bearing it up on your shoulders. And then this being specifically over the, the heart. Uh, I don't, I don't don't know. I think it's really interesting. The division of individuals over the breast piece, over the heart and the community on the shoulders. Uh, And I, I just, I'm thinking of, you know, for those who do, lead communities and how very uh, difficult it is to make wise and just and righteous decisions uh, and weighing and oscillating between the individuals in the community. And I I don't know. I just, I, Mm. you know, I don't know. I'm so glad you brought that up. No, no, let's, let's sit on this for a second. I think, I think you're, I think you're onto something. Cause yeah, like I, I feel like, um, there is a knee-jerk reaction to to flip it to to look at the at the whole community, the big the the weightiness of like oh man, there's all those people, and I have to please them all, right? Like I have to make a decision knowing, and this is what's in my heart. Like oh, what what are all these people? How are their reactions going to be? And the actual like individual needs represented there uh, get lost in that. And you still have to carry the weight of that. You still have to carry all the people with all the problems and all the complaints coming to you. Like I, I, I know pastors, I know how real that is. Um, but what's on your shoulders, it's like, it's not, that's the burden that you just, you carry, right? Like you aren't thinking about it necessarily, you know, it's there and you deal with it and you carry it. But what is it you're going to put upon your heart? Is it, is it, thinking about, you know, how the, how the whole group is going to react or thinking about all the individual people, the, the smaller groups, smaller tribes that, you know, they could really easily get left out or have a decision made that doesn't benefit them, but benefits the other, you know, the, the eight important tribes. Uh Um, like, and, and this is a call to be like, no, you have to, you have to carry the weight of the whole people, but, when you're actually making decisions, you need to see all the the different needs and and smaller communities and take all of those into account. Like that's what's supposed to be on your heart. And that is the thing God wants in God's presence. God's it says, you know, that should be a remembrance before 
Adonai continually. Mm -hmm. And it repeats that again, um, at the, at the very end upon his heart before Adonai consistently, constantly, I should say. And so it's like, God isn't interested in us, um, trying to, to lead, to make decisions. If we're just going to look at the community as a big, massive humanity that needs to be managed so that there's, you know, damage control, cost benefit analysis, just making sure that it's as uh, efficient as possible. Like God wants us to see the actual interlocking unique pieces and to, to see the body as like all, all those organs need to be taken care of. Like we can't just, we can't just ignore the small ones that seem like they aren't as important. Um, yeah, I think that's, I think that's a huge distinction. <laughs> yeah. And you start to get a picture of like why this is a full-time position that somebody has yes. to be set apart for and they can't do other work. Um, yes. Because it is so very weighty and yeah. nuanced and complex. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I think that weightiness is a big part of it because yeah, like it, it's, um, you're, you're going to have to carry it one way or the other and actually being devoted to, to going against the grain a little bit and, and being like, okay, I'll carry the heavier burden so I can focus my attention on the actual needs here. Like that's, that takes some doing, not just in terms of the effort, but in the way of like actually retraining our hearts to, to have God's priorities there. Um, yeah, that, it, it takes a lot of devotion and a lot of intention. I certainly do not envy the position of having to make those sorts of like just as a just as a dad of a four year old and a two year old mm-hmm. running around each other. Like, <laughs> I I seriously want to have like twenty five cameras just all over my house because <laughs> every single day there's some sort of like what happened? How am I gonna mm-hmm. like because because both of my boys are, have different, like these different moments where like, they're just very sweet to each other. But then there are other times where it's just like, Nope, I want that. I'm going to push you down. And how do I figure out which one actually happened in that moment? <laughs> so yeah, yeah. This, and that's just, that's a very simple, low stakes sort of decision-making versus, um, what, what a priest or a, a church leader or whatever, yeah. Like there, there are some really, really heavy decisions to make when you're in this kind of position. Well, I was just going to say, I think it's the picture that you get too, is that there's something very also lonely or isolated about this. Like when Aaron is entering the holy place, hmm. it, it, there's not a bunch of people with him. There's not a whole committee, you know, but he, Yeah, and I think, uh, there's a great movie called diary of a country priest, which is, uh, and, and there are many actually great movies about this phenomenon, of uh, being a leader in a community, a spiritual leader. In this case, it's a priest, um, like a Catholic priest. Uh, but there's something about the nature of the relationship between leaders and the people that is like very intertwined. Like he's, you know, Aaron is wearing the names of all of the groups. And yet also like it, it it's a lonely, it can be a very lonely position. Um where you are apart from them, like it is precisely bearing them up in this way that puts you apart from them and uh, that you are uh, responsible for, you know, the, the, that Aaron is responsible for 
remembering when making the decisions, right? Remembering all the individual people, he has to do that, but he doesn't necessarily then get to come out and explain himself to all of the people or, you know, like they're going to be people who aren't going to understand the decisions and it's up to him. It's up to him to execute it with justice, but they're not going to look at it all the time and think that it is just. And I think that's where the the shoulder stones come in. Like mm-hmm. you have to bear that weight because yeah, you to, to, I mean, for Aaron to want to come out and explain himself to every angry person, <laughs> it's like, you know, that at that point that becomes more about Aaron, like just not having to deal with it. Cause it's, it's not right. doesn't practically serve that much of a purpose. And yeah, like you've, you've just got to bear that weight at the end of the day. And like, Oh man. Yeah. That's huge. Um, but man, we are, I mean, these are longer ones, but we're not even halfway through all the clothes. So let's, let's keep it rolling. Let's hear about this robe. <laughs> okay. Uh, where are we? Verse 31. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Make the robe of the ephod entirely of blue cloth with an opening for the head in its center. There shall be a woven edge, like a collar around this opening so that it will not tear. Make pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn around the hem of the robe with gold bells between them. The gold bells and the pomegranates are to alternate around the hem of the robe. Aaron must wear it when he ministers. The sound of the bells will be heard when he enters the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out so that he will not die. A lot going on here. An unexpected uh, uh, reasoning for for this <laughs> comes right out the end. Yes. Um, and one thing I want to say first, too, because this is something I've, I've seen in uh, rabbinic interpretations is that when it, it talks about the, um, the opening for the head, they say that the, uh, the technical Hebrew should be translated that it's, it's like edge should be folded within it, which it doesn't make a lot of sense when I just say that, but it's like, um, it's kind of how they would construct chain mail armor where you don't just have like the edge of the mail. It's actually like folded over so that it's still strong at the top. So it has like an extra length of collar that's kind of like a turtleneck, but flipped down. Um, and the reason for this, the rabbis say, is so that they can't tear their clothes like you would when you're mourning. Um, and I think that's uh, an important thing to to bring in here, especially because uh, the death part that's brought up later uh, has a, a pretty specific instant tied to it. Um, before we dig into that, what, uh, other thoughts, bells, the pomegranates, what's going on here? Yeah. I, the, the pomegranates always kind of throw me off. Like, okay. It yeah. just seems like a weird, <laughs> I, I don't know what, like were pomegranates so common, I guess maybe, or just, I mean, I, th- I think so. They, yeah, I don't know. I ne- I never think about pomegranates. So it's just always <laughs> weird that, that they come up as the illustration. And yeah, I mean, I know that their pomegranates are one of the fruits they bring back when the spies come out of the land. So I think they, they know about them. I, I don't know. I don't know. Like they don't feature super prominently in biblical stories. That's for sure. But, um, that, yeah, because we maybe don't have the the best cultural understanding of that. Let's start with the other one bells. I think this is one we can wrap our heads around a little bit. So if he's got bells all along the hem of his robe, what is the immediate effect of that? <laughs> noisy, <laughs> noisy. Right. And functionally, that means, you know, you can always tell where the priest is. You're going to hear the old jingling <laughs> when, uh, when a priest is around, mm. uh, which, uh, like, what does that, 
what does that do? Like, you know, what, what, uh, what does that change about being a priest? Well, I mean, there's no secret agent priest. Yes. (laughs) Like everyone, everyone around knows that the priest is at work in that moment. Absolutely. And it, it does mention that this is worn when they're ministering. So, you know, like if you're thinking in a context where like, you know, priests weren't serving all the time. They could have normal lives, but, uh, when they're being a priest, when they're ministering, you can, yeah, there, there's no, um, maybe privacy is the wrong word, but there's no, like you said before, there's no secrecy. Like everyone knows where you are pretty much like at all times, like your, your presence isn't hidden. It's obvious. It's always obvious that you are present. Yeah. I was thinking it's, uh, it's, you know, on the one hand you could look at it as, you know, it guarantees your integrity so that you can't be in secret, but maybe a more positive spin would be it's because you are meant to be found when you are ministering. Like people mm-hmm. want to come and find you to be ministered to. So yes. you're just you're just advertising that it's a it's a you know, it's a it's a beacon. It's a lighthouse. It's something that's meant to draw people in. Uh, when yes. when they need to find you. Yes, and also we should remember this is this is these are golden bells, which gold is the the substance that is uh, prevalent when it's in God's presence. So it, it it does it has that effect for sure of like oh the priest is here for for you. Um, and to kind of draw on that, like you know the the bells highlighting the priest's presence. Now let's think about what the pomegranates that are alongside them. Like what is that? what is that image? Um, like, like just think about like, um, I know you said you don't think about Brent or uh, pomegranates a lot, Brent, but like you've seen an inside the inside of a pomegranate, right? Yes. Okay. So what, what's it, what's it like? Uh, juicy. It's, <laughs> it's, it's like juicy. a, it's a whole bunch of like little seeds, mm-hmm. a whole bunch. Well, it's of like a cluster. There's like little... a, it's like a whole cluster. Yes. And there's about a billion of them in there. There, it is. It is numerous. You pop one open, and yeah, it's just seed, 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 seed. They're all stuffed with juice. And um, I, I can't say for sure, like how far this goes back historically, but to this day, like in Judaism, the pomegranate is. Uh, it's often associated with uh, with mitzvot, with doing good good deeds, following Torah, and and that your fruit should be numerous as numerous as the seeds of a pomegranate. Okay. I was actually picturing the wrong thing. In my mind, I was thinking of a grapefruit. <laughs> oh. <laughs> this is, yes. So pomegranate, very different, quite full of seeds. Yes. This is actually kind of, of preposterous. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, uh, and either way, like, you know, I kind of mentioned this a bit earlier, but coming off of day three with the, the idea of, of, uh, the land bringing forth this life in, in the form of fruit, um, the priests are like, con- like their presence, uh, with the bells is also adorned with these pomegranates, like where they go is, is fruitful. Um, their presence should be fruitful. Uh, and, um, that, yeah, like that, that again, like kind of reminds people on both sides. Like it, I, I think kind of hewing to what you were saying, read, like we could read this cynically, like, oh, this is to keep the priest from doing, you know, naughty things and, and mm-hmm. acting in secret, but it could also just be a reminder for the priest you know, like every time you hear that bell, you're like, oh, right, I'm, I'm a priest right now. I'm, I'm, 
Uh, I need to be fruitful. I need to be a pomegranate tree for these people that are around me that are coming to me because they hear my presence and they're coming to me for help. Um, and I think that also fits in with the, the, uh, inability to tear their robes. Like this is a time that is not about you, even in like those most precious of feelings, like, like when you're grieving, um, and like that is even something like that's not, um, what you bring to your job as a priest, um, which, you know, in, in this day and age might sound cruel, but I think it, uh, especially with how priesthood ended up working where it's like, you know, you don't just have one person who's just supposed to be on all the time and supposed to stuff their feelings down. It's more that like when you are fulfilling this crucial role, like you don't bring your own baggage into that. Which I think, especially when we reflect on the decision-making part that we just talked about, is really important. Um, and now that I've brought that up, when we think about doing things in secret and priests dying when they're before God, does this bring anything to mind? I'll let you in on a little secret. This is a reference to something that happens technically later in Torah. Um, and that is the story of Nadav and Avihu who are mentioned okay, in this very I was, chapter. I was going backwards and I was thinking like, <laughs> oh man, what am I missing? That's going to be so obvious, but yes. Yes. And we see that they, they do die while they are, uh, being priests. And there's a lot of debate about exactly what they did. A lot of people focus on like, oh, they brought alien fire, but if you look at the context there, it happens at the inauguration of the temple uh, or the tabernacle, I should say. So very connected with this moment that we're reading here. And I think why there's a intertextual reference, but um, it's on the day of the inauguration, you know, fire, like lightning goes out from God's presence over the ark and lights the altar and the people like the first time they encounter God's presence, they're freaked out at Mount Sinai here. They're full of joy mm -hmm. and they start worshiping. And these priests go away in secret in the inner part of the tabernacle to do their own little private worship ceremony. And I think that's what this is saying is like, you're not, you're not a priest for yourself. Like this is a, mm. this is an anti-ego thing. Like there is not a, because you have access to the inner sanctum, that is not a VIP pass, <laughs> even though like there, you know, the text, uh, uh, heavily implies that they were like doing it out of a sense of devotion. But I was like, no, you don't understand your role. You're supposed to be with the people you're here for the people you're carrying their name around. You are supposed to be with them. These bells mean that you are not, uh, supposed to, um, you know, your, your presence is for other people to be aware of your fruit is for other people to taste. And that is so crucial here. And I think, you know, hopefully we can see like why this is so needed in the conversation about spiritual leadership. Mm -hmm. But like for us, uh, like as individuals, not necessarily in a position of leadership, um, especially in the way like our culture, a lot of our intimate moments function on like, um, sharing and sympathizing. And a lot of that is really good. But, uh, 
it's also important to know, like when you are showing up for someone as a priest, it's not like, um, selfish or anything like that to like, like when you make your presence available, when you put bells on and say, Hey, I, I could be here for you as you're walking through this difficult time. That's not a time for you to be going like, Oh, Hey, like, you know, Oh, that happened to me too. Blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, um, I'm sure, I'm sure there's context where that is appropriate, but, uh, for, for us in our very egocentric, uh, individualistic Western culture, like we need to, to treat that like the plague and be thinking about like, how can I be with others in their moment of worship, not heighten my own moment of worship? How can I extend that to other people and be giving my fruit away? Like that's the point of fruit. Plants don't eat their own fruit. They give it away. It's for creating new life elsewhere. And the role of priest really calls us to be egoless and selfless. I mean, I think we can see echoes of, of, uh, you know, Jesus in this, like that, that's, uh, this stuff was all always here, but like that, that is what being a priest calls us toward. It reminds me of, uh, so my wife, Leanne is a professional counselor. And in the in the counseling world, it's called transference. Like you're supposed to avoid transference where they're they're talking about a thing and you are making it about your thing or, you know, you resist the urge to over um, kind of share. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that there is wisdom in that that we need to listen to. One of the things that I find, you know, interesting about pastoral ministry, though, which is what I do is that there you there is there is more like sharing of life uh it's not simply a clinical relationship you know yeah and but i but i think I, i'm just thinking about the what uh like one of like my my i call him my other soulmate who i work with his name is derek uh and <laughs> he's you know uh he's just my other soulmate that's the best way i can describe it and there is a way that he ministers that is it's like a donation of self it's a giving of self um that's not like it's he he doesn't become like a vacuum like i am just a faceless personalityless like body or ear that is here to like receive what you are saying and i am not like a interactive like personal agent in the whole thing like no he but 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 i but he he is able to like give himself to the person in a way that is personal, but that it's not about him. You know, it's not about gratifying like some, uh, desire that he has to like share his experiences and kind of a me too, or a, like one upsmanship or whatever, like the, it could be twisted into. And I, I just think it's like a, it's a process of, of maturing and learning how to, and, and maybe for, for some of us, like I know that, uh, I definitely have the, the pitfall there in front of me to share in a way that it would make it about me, you know, but Mm -hmm. I think there is real goodness and value in like being a fully present self with somebody else when you are ministering to them and being willing to, and and it, but it's a matter of wisdom knowing how and when and to what degree to, to share, to, to say me to, you know, like to do all that kind of stuff. Um, and we just have to be aware of our own vices. Um, Absolutely. But yeah, yeah. 
And that's where I think like, it's kind of beautiful the way these, these kind of um, guardrails, if you will, are there. Like it doesn't just say like, Hey, you're not allowed to tear your robe. It just gives you a robe. That's like, Hey, you, you, that's not what this is for. This isn't for you to vent your own emotions on. Mm-hmm. And like you said, like you do need to bring yourself when you show up and that might involve you sharing part of your story, but it is, it's very, it takes a lot of discernment to know when you're doing that to, to fill time or to pull away from something that's really heavy or because you have an agenda to like, Hey, I don't really want to just sit with this uncomfortable thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, especially like I can speak for myself, like as a man and having been socialized with like, you know, a certain definition of masculinity that does and fixes, um, Mm -hmm. it can be a way of, you know, proving my own worth to go, Oh yeah, I've been there and I've actually dealt with it. And actually like, uh, and you're going to be okay too, but like, here are my bona fides on like why I can help you and why I'm, I'm uh, worthy of, of having this conversation with you instead of just having the conversation. Not assuming that your way through this is going to be like my way through this, exactly. but is there a way that I can share my way that actually helps you find your own way and doesn't assume that you need to copy me because, because I'm, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I'm not sure if, if this bears out across context, but I, I know for myself, whenever I find myself having to give backstory, then I know like, uh Oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm just, uh, <laughs> I'm doing the old man, Josh thing. And then talking about what happened back in my day when I did that. And it's like, yeah, that's not right. If, if you need that much background and detail, then it's not about <laughs> just giving them a gift from your own experience. It's about, you know, having them appreciate you, which like we, we all need to be appreciated, but that's not, that's not the priestly role. Right. That's not the time for it. Right. Yes. And, uh, and I think, you know, in here in the body where we have a different organization conception of how to navigate this space that the priest did, we can, we can modify that, but we, we do need to like, when we're in this role, like again, yeah, I I love what you were talking about there. I think the, the robe is really about presence. Like, how are you present here? And how are you to go back to the pomegranates? Are you giving them fruit or are you eating your own fruit? Are you getting high off of your own supply? Like, how are you actually helping that person? Um, which, you know, relies on having their name in front of your heart when you're making decisions. And, you know, if you're in your head right now and thinking like, man, you're, you're kind of going overboard, maybe like overextending this idea of, of selflessness and reading too much into it. Let's go ahead and read the next little article of clothing and see if these themes don't continue to develop on the same trajectory. Brent, take us away. All right. Verse 36. Make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it as on a seal, holy to the Lord. Fasten a blue cord to it to attach it to the turban. It is to be on the front of the turban. It will be on Aaron's forehead, and he will bear the guilt involved in the sacred gifts the Israelites consecrate, whatever their gifts may be. It will be on Aaron's forehead continually so that they will be acceptable to the Lord. Aaron wears a crown and it says, holy to Adonai, holy to God. But the function of it is so that all of the uh, iniquity that's being atoned for rests on Aaron. That's what it means to be holy to the Lord. 
That's what he's carrying on his shoulders. And at the end, what did it say? It said, um, I think your translation said something a little different, but uh, in the translation I have here, it says to bring favor for them, them being the people, to bring favor for them before Adonai. Like this is, this is so egoless. This is like entirely about the people. Aaron is carrying their burdens so that God will have favor with them or they'll have favor with God. And that is, that is such a, like, you know, we usually frame holiness, you know, go figure as like how we conduct ourselves as individuals, but this really places the locus of it on not how good we're doing as an individual, but how we are uh, engaging and participating in our community um, and, and who we're doing it for, Um, you know, holiness isn't just doing everything for God's sake, because man, is it easy for that to become centered on us? It's, it's for us to be uh, there for the community, for the people to take on and bear all that difficult stuff, all that messiness, help them navigate through it and to do it so that they can be good with God. Like that is just such a, you literally, you have a gold plate on your head. It's like a crown, but it's this crown. That's like, I will, (laughs) I will hold all of your sin. If you, it literally said, whatever the sacrifices, whatever is being offered, the, the priest just automatically is taking, is, is picking up the tab. It all rests on him. Like that's, Man, that's huge. Yeah, NAT footnote says uh, the word originally meant flower, but they mm. they think of it more as a plate because you can't really write on a flower in the same way. Oh, interesting. Um, and the the rabbinic tradition uh, says it is two fingers wide and stretches from ear to ear. Oh, interesting. And the word is seats. If that's related to the word for seat seat. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. Friends should have been fourteen episodes. God, <laughs> <sighs> that's a that's a really good observation and bears a lot. I mean, we have a lot of theology, like Christian theology, that gets wrapped up with like and tied to cultic practice, like the the Israelites' cultic practice in in weird mm-hmm. ways, and it communicates weird things to us about holiness and sin and what God can and can't bear to be around or whatever. Uh, yeah. And I just think it's interesting that like, like again, Aaron is bearing the guilt, right? Mm-hmm. And he is entering into the holy place with that. Yes. And so this, you know, this, this weird, well, I'm just going to call it theological nonsense that we, that we pass around <laughs> that like God is like afraid of like catching the flu or something <laughs> that he can't be in the presence of sin. I I don't like the sin is bear born into the very presence of the Lord. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and so I think it just, that's like a, this is the, to me, this is like where the kind of, significance of like the whole Bema project kind of really starts to hit home for a lot of people is like these things we've just kind of assumed for a long time 
that we know. Mm-hmm. And it's like these same kind of one-liners get spoken again and again. Um, and it's weird because it, it gets tied to the same texts, like the very text that we're talking about now when it comes, like I said, to cultic practice and stuff like that, but like just, just twisted. And then, and then you get like a, a meaning out of it that actually feels a lot like the opposite of what it should mean. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I just think let like, let's just sit with that. Like, let's just sit with that picture of Aaron with this plate of pure gold and this very a luminescent, beautiful, set apart kind of thing. And what he is taking with him is the guilt involved in uh, the gifts that the Israelites are constantly. I just, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's really important. Yep. It's, it's so like, yeah, like what you said, it's so clear, but also so powerful in the text. And it's, um, yeah. Again, to like go back to the big theme of like, what is being, what is being taught, what is being like visually taught is like, yeah, when you're here, I am holding you. I am, and and I'm representing God to you. Like, this is what's holy to God for me to remove the burden from you. Like, Mm. man, what a, what a, um, way to help uh, people navigate through those most difficult areas of life and to have someone who can, you know, we were talking about the, the clear oil before to have someone who can be able to, to see clearly through your mess because they, they don't have an agenda uh, other than to reconcile you with God and that they, they, their ego isn't in the way that they're, when they're making decisions, they're thinking about your context and your needs as a, as a whole, and that they're willing to like, they have the, the, the bearing of someone the posture of someone who is like carrying, uh, that, that willingness to be responsible for all the people around them. Mm. Like that is, that is so huge. And like, on the other hand, I think we can hear like, if, if this was taken even more seriously as like expectations for leadership, spiritual leadership, like, Oh my goodness. Like, I don't even, I, what a thing that would be. Um, uh, and actually, on that note, um, Brenton, will you read the last little chunk about the um, the clothing here? Weave the tunic of fine linen and make the turban of fine linen. The sash is to be the work of an embroiderer. Make tunics, sashes, and caps for Aaron's sons to give them dignity and honor. Uh, which I believe those are the same two words as we saw earlier mm-hmm. with Aaron. After you put these clothes on your brother Aaron and his sons, anoint and ordain them. Consecrate them so they may serve me as priests. Make linen undergarments as a covering for the body, reaching from the waist to the thigh. Aaron and his sons must wear them whenever they enter the tent of meeting or approach the altar to minister in the holy place, so that they will not incur guilt and die. This is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and his descendants. Man, there's a there's a lot we could go into here. Um, I don't think I'm going to spend any time talking about the underwear, but, uh, I think it's really important when we, when we come back to this phrase we heard at the beginning, like you said, glory and splendor, when we think about spiritual leaders decked out in glory and splendor, like we have an idea of what that means. Um, but like, man, from step one, going through these clothes, the, the pieces of clothing and what goes behind them, the, the weight that that's there. Like, to me, this feels like, um, like the first time I studied this, I was like, man, 
like the spoiler alert, but next week, you know, it's going to talk about like what the priest's actual job is, like actually describing what they do in a day. Um, and it's like, man, you know, that, that, that like, this is a weird way to do a job description. Like you're, you're kind of, uh, putting the important stuff at the end. Like, shouldn't we know about that first? Like, why are we just getting all the cool, like, Hey, here's how you get blinged out. Here's like all the cool perks of the job. Um, even like what you just, uh, read Brandon talks about them being given authority and being sanctified, like all this stuff. And I think like we read that and I know my first reaction was like, why start here? That feels like very shallow. (laughs) That feels very, um, like you're, you're, talking about how cool they're supposed to look but i wonder if experientially it's like you you put on these clothes and you don't know what you're going to do with them yet but you know what they mean and they and you know the 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 role you're supposed to play broadly and i wonder if the clothes are an invitation to 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 fit the clothes like they're supposed to be clothes of glory and splendor so that you can you can fill them in a way that measures up to that glory and splendor. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And like with this, like to, to uh, man, and I, I really wonder how intentional it is, especially, I don't know how deep the, the uh, chiasms go, but you know, we, we have this kind of repeated end bracketing and we also had the chiasm in the uh, fourth day of creation. And it makes me wonder if there's some parallels there, but more than anything, um, when I think about uh, the priests and like where they would fit in that creation, um, like the, to me, it's, it's uh, like the, the, the idea that at the, the center of it, uh, we have this idea of, of God giving us these, lights these these ways to navigate and seeing that like the content of that is all about the sharing of burdens and the uh the selflessness it takes to create a harmonious community like that just on the one hand like i think i don't think anyone who's listened to this (laughs) would say that the the process the clothing describes the role the clothing is supposed to be built around it's not easy but there is kind of a beautiful simplicity to it um that feels i don't know attainable a little bit you know like it it doesn't it's hard but it's 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 a doable kind of hard i like i love what you said about the bearing of one another and their in our burdens like the that it is that is an orienting kind of thing i I just i i guess what's going through my head is that um when we minister to others in a way that is meant to like orient them in the darkness in a time of confusion or lostness like what i find often like um what the kinds of things that are very disorienting to people uh have to do with interpersonal relationship kinds of things have to do with uh, like an injustice or a lack of righteousness or a guilt and that the priestly role is about, I mean, Marty has talked about this in other places, like one of the main roles of a priest, like the way he says it is to help people navigate their own atonement. 
Yep. And mm-hmm. atonement is about the conscience. Um, and if somebody's conscience is eating at, like, you know, because of mistakes that they have made or, um, you, you know, just wrongs that they've done, it's, it's like as, it's as simple and it's as profound as you say about how do I, how do I bear you up? Like, I don't want, I don't want to heap guilt on you. My job is not to make you feel bad. Uh, that's the exact thing that is like, it's, it's maybe a helpful distinction to realize that like what keeps people, I think from God, from the presence of God is not the wrong per se. It's mm-hmm. the guilt that is incurred and they feel then like that they, it, I mean, it's, it's the Adam and Eve problem, right? Yeah. The running and, and the hiding. And, and on that note, I, let's see, I, I'm not, I don't want to push back. I want to push a little deeper because when you brought up atonement, I think there, there's an even deeper nuance there. Like, uh, like I'd agree with you broadly about it being primarily about the conscience. But, um, so in the Hebrew, the literal meaning of the word atonement is to cover, which, oh my goodness, how much bad theology has come out of this idea of like needing to cover over sin. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. However, that's not at all how the uh, word is used in like Leviticus when it's talking about like ritual atonement, like the actual process that uh, Jesus is, you know, supposed to be supplanting with a better version of it. It's a covering, not over sin, but between you and sin. Mm -hmm. To me, what this adds is first of all, the guilt thing, obviously, like it's showing you that the, that, that sin isn't, it isn't you, like you can, you can change, you can repent, you can just go the other way. It's fine. You're good. Um, but I think also like sin comes with so many compounding effects and can feel inescapable even beyond just the mechanism of guilt, but for a thousand other things, you know, we, we hurt someone and then sure we feel guilty about it, but even when we can have some grace for ourselves, we might still feel fear that like, I don't have a right to talk to that person again. Like maybe they don't want to talk to me. And like, the, and all sorts of things like that, of like ways that the hurt, the wound that is created by sin can overpower us in a number of ways, whether it's through building up habits or damage done to community or damage done to ourselves. And looking at the, the suffering that that sin has created both in ourselves and others and for a priest to come in and just try and um, shed light on how to, how to, uh, bring God's reconciliatory and healing power to that suffering mm. to alleviate it. Like it, it isn't just taking off that burden of guilt, but it, it's also, it, it's in that same act. I see, you know, going and having that hard conversation that you thought would be impossible to have. Mm-hmm. Um, within that, I see like actually, pushing and testing the the limits that sin sometimes convinces us are there that when they really aren't mm-hmm. like that aren't at all. And, and sin has a way of, of um, creating those kinds of false boundaries, you know, false narratives cycles that seem impenetrable and guilt is certainly one of them. But I think there's, there's a lot more complexity and a lot more like radical, um, power that that is held within atonement and and 
that kind of light that like we've been talking about, doesn't just show you what's immediately in front of you, but shows you where you are in the dance. Like you are feeling the way you are because, Hey, you know, yeah, you need to reconcile with your community and you also need to do some repentance and, you know, exactly like with the festival season, like, Hey, you need to, you know, it's Pesach. It's, you know, maybe it's time for you to think about leaving Egypt. What does that mean? What does that look like? Or, or maybe you're at a different part of the year or a different part of your own season in life and having someone there to, to give you light, just like with the stars, we talked about this before, right? They don't actually give light on the earth that you can like do stuff by, but they do help you know where and when you are and how to navigate the mm-hmm. moment you're in, which mm-hmm. like, man, if that's not what stresses us out most of all, like, I don't know what does like figuring out how to actually not just get through the day, but what do I do with my life? Like that's how, (laughs) that's what our biggest problems end up, you know, kind of uh, feeding into is what, what, what do I do with this whole big chunk of time that God's given me? Um, And to see the priestly role as, as not necessarily fixing all of those problems, but giving teaching, giving, giving light, giving God's presence in a way that teaches and helps people who are, are listening helping them navigate. I, yeah, I, I love these images so much because I think there's so much potential locked up in here. Man, I think that's so, so well said. Uh, particularly, I loved what you said about uh, how the, the effect of sin that we become convinced that there are things that are immovable or impossible mm-hmm. uh, and and you know in a way atonement is the, the the role of the priest is helping break down that inward conviction that like no this can't be this can't be fixed this can't be restored this can't be put right and the the role of the priest is to bear that up and say well let's you know let's go like it's not it's not impossible like you believe yeah yeah that's uh that's that's so good once again, no shortage of things to wrestle with yes. coming out of this. Yes. So, so to, yeah, to kind of step back and just kind of look at where we've been, because yeah, there, there's a lot in this one. And again, you know, spiritual leadership, all that complication in here. And for, for individuals listening to this, like make sure you have a big old grain of salt in terms of how much of this you take on as responsibility versus how much you take on as as kind of like a voluntary offering to fill a role and to use these kind of, um, I guess you could call them like techniques of presence, like ways of Mm. being present. Like that's, that's an important thing, but you know, I don't know all of your contexts and situations. So that is something that you have to do. Um, but to go back to the very beginning of this, uh, chunk of the Mishkan, we start with the oil that, that raw, substance of light producing goodness that comes out of our community. And I would just like to, in returning to that, this bridge between community and priest between, you know, the, the priest needing the community to provide it for them to be able to do anything at all. And then, uh, the priest, the, the people needing the priest to be the one to, to tend to it continually. Cause this is not something that, you know, 
we can all do 24 seven. Some of us can only be a priest for one or two times in our, in a relationship with someone we can, we can maybe fill this role. Um, very diverse body folks. You know, you can't expect yourself to have every single role, but I think it's really important. Um, if we maybe step out of the priest role, like how, how can you or your community, how can you slash we participate in teaching as a community? Like what gets communicated to the world around you or even within the community you're in, what is communicated by how you exist and interact as a community in this conversation between the fruit of community, those, those olives being turned into oil, being turned into light. Like, how do you, how do you bring pure oil into your community? What does that, what does that look like? How can you show up and give the best of what you have to your community or, or find opportunities for a community that is interested in bringing light you know, so I'm sure some people are in a situation where that is not even a certainty. And, you know, communities come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. So, like, how, how does the, you know, I think all communities, um, oh, I shouldn't say all communities, healthy communities, <laughs> there's always going to be fruit that comes out of that. And how how do you take that from something that you just use to nourish yourself and the other people in your community and actually put a spark on that and make it uh, an inviting light, something that uh, tells the world around you, or like I said, even just the people in your community, how does it communicate God's presence? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, hospitality is one we talk about a lot and just like the, the posture and way that we do hospitality, whether it's, you know, even on the most obvious level, is it begrudging or is it open-handed? Is it, is it stingy or is it, you know, maybe not lavish, but reasonably lavish? You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. that is, that is how we, like, we aren't just here to give light. We are here to like, what do we fill our light with? What is that? What is it that we as stars are, are communicating? Um, The next chunk we put that aside is priests and and you know we talked about the clothing of the priests the way that you know they aren't necessarily sources of light the way the sun is but they are things that they are lights that exist even in the darkness and sometimes the role of stars is just to let you know that you are in darkness and help you just be aware of the world around you so although we talked about a lot like how we fill the role of priest. I think, you know, if you're struggling to consider like what that would actually look like, if it's hard to think of a way forward, flip it around and think like, who are the priests in your life? Or if you don't have any, like, how would you identify someone as a light in the dark, not fixing the dark, but helping you get through that dark? Like, what is that? What are those qualities? And how can you how can you follow on that path or, or just if you're in a place where you, you can't be a priest cause you need a priest really think about who those people are and devote some time to building community with them because, you know, I bet you they probably need some community too. Mm-hmm. And then the one thing I want to highlight when if you think about the, the sacred garments themselves 
is, you know, a lot of times when we think about teaching kingdom and spreading God's presence, we think a lot about, you know, theology and gospel and, uh, without wading too far that direction, I'd like us to think in more qualitative terms, like how would you teach kingdom with just your presence? Like every, everything we talked about with the priest, it doesn't involve the priest doing anything, saying anything, even acting in any kind of way. They just be there just walking around that in and of itself communicates something, the presence itself. Mm. And just like we talked about with day one, hint, hint, all these parallels are there for a reason. Um, God's presence can be nourishing, right? Like the table, just knowing God's near can be nourishing, especially the more we, we dwell with that and trust in that. So how can you make your presence something that communicates that love, that communicates something that is spiritually nourishing? doesn't have to be big. Like, I, I hope none of you out there feel like this is some big impossible task. Like this is like, like, you know, pick one of these things, pick something manageable. It talks in Leviticus about, you know, priests needing to keep the fire lit all the time. And therefore the fire needs to be low. That's what the, the rabbis say. Keep the fire small. That's how you get it to burn all the time. But yeah, even just in a small way, how does, uh, how could your presence communicate God's presence? How could your presence communicate what kingdom is? Mm. And, um, and maybe just kind of a tag on here, like the focus of, of, um, or the, the method of looking at this through the lens of time, not necessarily place and space. Like the, the stars are there to guide us through seasons and days and weeks. Like, I think a lot of times, our um, gut reaction to try and fix things kind of comes from spatial thinking of, you know, linear A to B, you draw the arrow, boom, you're done. Whereas like when we start thinking in terms of time, when we start thinking of what would help this person get through their day, get through their week, when we actually start to think of their context in terms of something they have to trudge through every day, every hour, then we start to think of how to shine light on them um, that isn't about solving their problems, but helping them actually navigate life and, and taste of uh, the fruit of God's presence. Like how do we, I guess it kind of goes back to that, like, you know, give a man to fish, teach a man to fish paradox. Like how do you, you know, you, you don't usually get the opportunity to teach someone how to do the whole thing, but how can you give them a, a, a little, a little piece of God's presence, a little way of thinking about themselves, the way God sees them, like just a little, little morsel. You're, you're, you're a star. You're a star in the sky. You're not going to light up the whole thing. Mm How -hmm. can you just give them a little, little crumb of light? Mm -hmm. I think that, um, when we think about that in terms of time, rather than actually just solving their immediate problems, A to B, it both lessens the burden and helps make what we give actually a lot more, a lot more healing and, and honestly, a lot more full of light, a lot more useful. And we're not done talking about, uh, priests yet, but, uh, uh, yeah, I hope, uh, I hope maybe some of us can take a few steps down becoming a nation of priests, a kingdom of priests. The ones, uh, just one small 
quick thing that I was that was popping into my head when you were talking about um with just being a presence. Um and you said small things. Here here I meet a lot of new people and uh in my campus ministry and the thing that I find has like it's such a small thing that has such a huge impact on people is remember their name. And I think mm. that ties nicely to this idea of having the names individually written on the stones when I, and I, what I do, I write people's names down after I meet them. It's kind of a weird thing. I don't let people see my notepad cause I just like write a name and then one little thing about them, but I'll see a student on campus that I haven't seen in four months. And I met them one time and I say their name and it is crazy the way that people light up and it communicates a lot of what that, their significance in the community, the way that God sees and remembers. So anyway, that's just a small, like, Here's here's a practical thing you can walk away with. Write people's names down like a weirdo. Don't let them see you do it. But then you remember them and they're like, holy cow. Oh, I, I love that you brought that up because I think that's maybe we, we haven't focused on that as much. But yeah, like the whole priest thing is also it, it looks very weird. <laughs> like it's not right. going to look normal. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, like don't don't be afraid to get weird with it, people. Don't be afraid to get weird with it. Yeah, I, I was... Uh... <laughs> So I, I do this, um, I do wedding photography, um, mostly in the summers and the, the guy that I shoot with, he and I make it a, a very, very strong point to learn people's names. Hmm. Like if we're going to spend all day with them, like uh, on some senses, it's a, it's a practical thing where it's like, it's way easier to just address someone directly and tell them what we need them to do. Mm-hmm. But also like these people were selected by the bride and groom to be part of this day. Like they aren't just some rando attending, like they, they are actually important people. And so to, to recognize that importance and know that like these people were selected specifically, like using their name, um, is a way of communicating that. And uh, I was, um, I was in Waco meeting, um, some listeners shout out to Courtney and I was using people's names and Courtney's like, what is this some kind of party trick? Like what is going on here? How do you know everybody's <laughs> name? And it's just, you, you just have to intentionally ask people's names when you meet them. And then you have to intentionally use it and you have to be okay with getting it wrong. Like mm-hmm. there were several times during that meeting oh, yeah. in Waco where I, where I used the wrong name because you know, like I meet people and initially it's like, okay, well, so on the left we have, and then on the right over here, and then, then this group, and then, then people start moving around and you mix it up and you just have to be okay with getting it wrong. Yeah. And you just keep using those names and like the willingness to put that effort in is what communicates the value. And I can't like, I, I meet hundreds of people every weekend uh, when I'm shooting a wedding, I can't remember all of those names long-term. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in Reed's case, like this is somebody he's going to p- potentially interact with again, um, pretty frequently. So it's, it's a little bit smaller scale, but like in the moment, like I can, I can actually, if I put the effort into it, if I actually try and I'm okay with not getting it right every single time, I can actually do a lot more than it seems like I would like mm-hmm. it, you you put it into practice and it's actually it's actually easier than than you would think yep absolutely the weight of what that conveys is so much more than the effort i put into it (laughs) Mm -hmm. because most people aren't willing to put that effort in man i love that yeah this is all perfect i feel like 
feel like I could keep talking about this for hours. There's there's so <laughs> many ways to do this. Like yeah, Josh, we, I hate to break it to you, but we have been talking about this for hours. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, I'm just waiting uh, for this. So I'm waiting for the school to call me any second and say, "Hey, your kid's still waiting here to get picked up." <laughs> yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do about this. I don't know. We'll see. How, yeah, I don't. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> this is crazy. I'm sorry. Bro. Anyway, this is no. It's fine. This has been uh, an incredible episode. Yeah. The the way to appreciate the tabernacle. Whew. Like just there's so much there that I've just always glossed over my entire life and. Mm. Uh, I am, I'm cherishing the opportunity to explore the depths of this with you. So don't, don't take that the wrong way, Josh. I love this. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> but with that, we'll close it out. Uh, go to baymondeceptionship.com. Uh, check out the show notes for this episode. We'll, we'll see what, uh, what we can find for pictures of all these elements. And, uh, thanks for joining us on the Bayball podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. Sorry, guys. I'm angry. That's the kind of energy we need today. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, my energy is going to be, uh, you know, lost and confused, but angry. That's that's good energy. (laughs) Channel Marty's uh, Marty's energy from like, what, four weeks ago? You mean when we when we beat his stupid team in the AFC championship? (laughs) Josh, do you care about football at all? No. Okay, good. Marty's stupid bangles they lost to us and you know what you know what makes it even better and this is really the last thing i'm going to say because otherwise we'll talk about this too long what's great about all of this to me is that last year when his team like beat us in the afc championship they went on and lost the super bowl but our team went on and won the super bowl which makes it like 10 times as good so anyway that's it full domination that's right